You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this afternoon by David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How are things, David? Oh, pretty good. Unusually cold, but pretty good. I know our listeners love this, but how cold is unusually cold in Houston? It's gotten down into the low 30s. Low 30s. I don't think it's gotten that cold in Georgia. All right, listeners, that's all the weather talk we're going to do today. Don't you worry. <laughs> uh, you'll notice that our uh, third host, Michael Farmer, is not with us. He had a commitment, couldn't record with us. So this is a decimal point episode for you veteran listeners. And our subject matter, uh, interestingly enough, is one that uh, Michael Farmer picked. But we're going to get to that here in a moment after we talk about what's going on on the network. I know Sectarian Review... Uh, had an episode on Superman Red Sun last week, uh, which means that this week's episode would have been on Stephen King. Uh, so, as is usual, uh, Halloween is a year-long thing for Danny Anderson. Uh, <laughs> David, what else is going on on the network? Well, uh, Coyle Neal and Jordan Posk uh, collaborated on a review of the the Netflix Robert the Bruce movie, which um, I'm looking forward to listening to that. And the Christian Feminist recorded uh, an episode on white Christian women and Black Lives Matter. That's Very what I'm good. seeing. So all kinds of things going on on the network. Um, trying to think if there's any other introductory matter, and I don't think there is. So we'll go on to this week's subject matter. Uh, As some of our listeners know, no doubt, if you've been watching social media and if you've got pastors in your social media feed, uh, another giant in the evangelical world died this year, uh, namely Eugene Peterson, uh, who is most famous as the translator of the message, but pastors tend to know him for his uh, string of books uh, written theologically specifically for pastors. Uh, So we're going to be talking uh, specifically about uh, Eugene Peterson's relationship to poetry and the arts today, uh, which seems fitting, giving our podcast uh, personnel. Uh, and listeners, will just have you know that uh, originally Michael Farmer wrote up the show notes for this episode, but David and I are going to take turns being Michael and pitching the questions at each other. So, uh, David, why don't you play Michael first and fire this thing up? Well... I'm in Minnesota, and I'm incredibly crotchety and surrounded by cats. Is that is that not what you meant? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. All right. Um, well, so, Nathan, uh, when I hear the name Eugene Peterson, the first thing that I think of is the message, which his 
his enormously popular Bible translation. Uh, but what uh, what else of his reputation should I know um, beyond beyond the message? Is there anything else that you would recommend that I engage with? Yeah, when I was in seminary, uh, I was assigned one of his books, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. This is a phrase from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, but Peterson takes it and makes it a meditation on the life of the pastor. And what I discovered as I continued through seminary uh, is that Eugene Peterson was a, a good companion for seminary students as they dug into the difficulties and the complexities of biblical languages as they wrestled with questions that they had never encountered before in theology classes, uh, as they encountered the weirdness of church history. Uh, Eugene Peterson's books on spirituality and the pastor's life uh, really tended to be helpful for them. A couple of them that uh, I especially remember from seminary. One of them is actually because uh, my good friend David Butsu, who was in seminary with me, and he's still living there in East Tennessee, uh, one time said of me that I had a subversive spirituality to me. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's a, a funny phrase. Uh, and then I happened to be uh, working in the seminary library, which is one of the three or four jobs that I worked while I was in seminary, and saw that that was the title of a Eugene Peterson book. So I read it, and you know, it was this wonderful discussion of how you know the the life of the protester, the advocate, the activist in front of the television camera might have a certain, you know, romance to it. And it might have a certain glamour to it. Uh, but really the work of the pastor uh, in that sort of subversive way uh, does more work spiritually uh, to upend the idols of our age. And that's a, that's a sentiment that I've really tried to carry with me. I've certainly fallen victim at times to trying to be social media famous. But when I do, I remember Gene Peterson's book. The other one, uh, and this one, I mean, I, I happened to cross actually also while I was working at the uh, Emmanuel Christian Seminary Library. Back then it was at Emmanuel School of Religion, but that's not all that important right now. Uh, but it's a book called Take and Read, uh, which Grubbs knows is a reference to... Augustine. Yes, The Confessions. This book by Peterson, it's really a wonderful little book. It's a very brief read, uh, and it is basically a list of books that Peterson thinks that pastors should read uh, with a couple paragraphs of commentary on each one about questions that it raises for a pastor. It's only about 120 pages. Uh, you can really kind of, you know, dip into it and, you know, get your reading recommendations from Peterson. Uh, and like I said, this one was a book that I encountered sometime in my first year in seminary and it kind of settled my nerves that maybe I didn't belong there because I was one of the few there at seminary uh, who was not a Bible major or a ministry major as an undergrad. Uh, I was an English major and a philosophy major and Peterson's book uh, made the case that, hey, I, I was already doing the sorts of things and reading the sorts of books that pastors should be reading. So as you can hear, David, I mean, Peterson has been a companion to me over the years, to be sure. I kind of like the message. I know that there are some people uh, who just really despise that translation. Uh, I kind of <laughs> dig it, although, I mean, some of the language is getting dated. I'll go ahead and grant that. Although not nearly as dated as the Living Bible, if you read that one out loud. Oof, yeah. You, you, get, you, you get some chuckles out of that one at this point. 
Uh, but I think that that project is one that is worthwhile. So, um, other than the message, David, I mean, uh, is there any Peterson that you've dug into? Almost none at all. I hear him, you know, I, I, I'll see him quoted by people that I respect. Um, I'll see references to his book, um, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I've heard that title referenced. Um, but he's, he's, uh, he's one of those writers who's, I, I've, I just never, I just never got around to, um, I mean, my main encounter was with the message, uh, and I think, I think I'm not the target audience. That's probably right. That's probably right. I mean, like I said, I, I think that the message is an attempt to adjust the style without adjusting the content of the biblical narratives and the biblical poetry uh, so that it does reach, you know, people like the people in his, you know, congregation when he was a preacher, right? So these would have been people who are faithful church attenders, but not not necessarily people who spend time reading poetry, reading novels, right? right. Uh, so you're right, David. I mean, you and I are people who spend our time reading poetry and novels. So, you know, this is going to be uh, somewhat redundant for us because we're already kind of doing this work as we read the Bible ourselves. Right. I mean, as I was reading through um, uh, in our, our, our interactions with Peterson in this, uh, in this episode, um, just to reiterate, are, are being guided by um, a couple of interviews uh, that, that he did, uh, long, substantive interviews. Uh, and in one of those, um, uh, there were a couple times where it would quote the King James Version of a passage and then the Message Version of a passage. And I kept liking the King James, but <laughs> I, I grew up with it and internalized its language to a large degree. And then after that, built on it an education of dealing with, uh, with early modern poetry and early modern prose. And so um, I'm, I'm not the sort of person that, that, that the project of the message is for. And I have to, and I, I guess I need to get outside of my aesthetic sense and say there must be a number of people for that that this project is for, and that I need to, and that I need to reckon it worthwhile because there are people to whom that speaks. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. Well, let's start talking about these interviews, David. Uh, one of the interviews uh, is with Lucy Shaw. And in that, that interview, uh, Shaw points out that Peterson's life and his work have been, quote, conversational, end quote. And that's a word that uh, Peterson seizes on. So Shaw and Peterson used that word to refer to a kind of community that the theologian speaks to and speaks from, but also as an important linguistic mode. So in what sense, for Peterson or for you, are art and theology forms of conversation? So he talks about this in a number of different ways, and he uses uh, he uses some different words um, to to highlight that uh, conversation is dialogue. It involves speaking and listening between more than one speaker. Um, it's also dialectic. It goes back and forth as it approaches its goal. Um, it's not simply one person's. Uh, 
sort of chain of logic, uh, but but rather a, a kind of community, um, well, back and forth project. Uh, it's also relational. Um, it's it's something that's happening between persons. It's not just um, it's not just focused on ideas. There's also uh, there's also persons involved, and so. Uh, all of these things he sees as as valuable and and essential um, both to art and uh, and into into theology. Um, the uh, the notion that that our theology or that our uh, our our teaching as Christians, you know, the way we're taught as Christians is mostly in the form of monologue. Um, would then be something that uh, it it's it's limiting um, it's limiting that co that converse the the virtues that are in conversation. Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean that also has something to say for the monograph as the main publishing mode of theology, right? I mean, uh, you've certainly got works like the Summa Theologica, which simulates a kind of exchange of ideas, but you know that in some ways is an except it in a lot of ways it's an exceptional text but in terms of its form it's an exception to a lot of the theology that's done monograph style right right well but we need to i i i like that you brought up thomas um because uh he he's he's more of a pointer towards something that went before yeah the monograph it may be the coin of the realm now but uh thomas's questions and answers right he'll raise a question and then he'll produce on one hand it would seem that this would be the answer and on the other it would seem that this would be the answer and then and then there's uh, sort of a uh, almost, almost Christ in in the Sermon on the Mount but I say unto you right as as Thomas the master steps in and addresses the different um, objections raised in the back and forth um, and in order to uh, come to a fuller answer, right? He he frames uh, the summa as uh, as this dialectic that results in a synthesis, and he's getting that out of out of a tradition um, within within theology that first began, um, especially in in the early Middle Ages, with uh, florilegia, with uh, books of quotations from the fathers. Um, uh, so, th so that you might, uh, you might have a book that that contains, um, you know, passages from the fathers, all talking about, you know, the Gospel of John, or all talking about uh, chastity, or something like that, and those kinds of thematic or uh, commentary on on uh, a common, commonly interesting passage of scripture, you know that that. Um, one of the ways theology was done in sort of late classical, early, early Middle Ages was to preserve the conversation of the fathers, preserve the things that they say, and to put them in the same texts so that they're, you know, sort of in the same imaginary room speaking together. Um, and then uh, later in the Middle Ages, you have the, the yes and no tradition, the sick et non tradition, um, in which you would have different, um, those different uh, quotations from the fathers or from previous authorities 
set even in opposition to each other. And the task of the theologian was to enter that dialogue, um, that even apparent contradiction between respected authorities, and find a way that all the insights could be preserved in order to generate an even more fruitful insight. So, I mean, there is there is a way, there is a tradition in, um, you know, kind of the Western theology that looked more like a conversation. Um, and that makes perfect sense uh, because one of the main forms in which philosophy passed into the West was in the form of, of Plato's dialogues. All right. Um, Aristotle came to be um, popular later on, um, you know, as he was sort of rediscovered. But even then, that form of the question and answer, um, we see it in, you know, in Anselm's, um, uh, Anselm's uh, Cur Deus Homo, right, um, in which, you know, he and, you know, Bozo talk about uh, why, why was it necessary for God to become a man, why the God-man, you know, and so forth. So, so in, I, I, I appreciated his, his desire to bring the conversation of, uh, to bring theology back to the notion of conversation because for a long time that's that's where it was right right and and this I'm, I'm glad you gave that historical survey david because too often i read i usually don't hear i usually read uh people lament that you know quote unquote western christianity with a capital w and a capital c uh, is a religion of monologue, whereas, you know, rabbinic religion is a conversation. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, parts of it, yeah. Other parts, not so much. Right. Well, in the, the, the early medieval florilegia look much more like um, the, you know, something like uh, uh, the Talmud, I guess, um, or uh, with the with the the preservation of particular quotes by particular authorities organized according to the text, and you can even get those um, a, a modern form of that with uh, is it Thomas Oden who uh, presided over the uh, the the, co- the 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 commentaries uh, the the sort of uh, patristic um, Bible commentaries. Where you can sort of that sounds about right, but I don't have that ready to hand. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember their exact title off the off the top of my head, but um, there there's a whole series of relatively recent, you know, last you know last few decades at least, uh, commentaries that gather, um, you know, what the fathers said about a particular book of scripture in the order working through the book, so that you can kind of see you can see the conversation it's uh, they're actually a lot of fun and I appreciate that um, in terms of the art uh, I was wondering what exactly um, I, it, it did not seem to apply in exactly the same way because you don't necessarily see poets always openly responding back to each other you know except for you know sort of the Christopher Marlowe um, Walter Raleigh you know, shepherd nymph exchange. Um, but he does emphasize poets using conversational language. Um, the idea that poets pay very careful attention to the way 
to the way people speak in ordinary life, um, that poets' uh, language rises out of the fact that they are those who listen carefully to the world and then speak back to it in their poetry. Maybe not from one poet to another necessarily, um, but the poet back to the world. The poet having listened to the world then speaking back to it. Um, and that might also be a way in which theology could be conversational. Um, right. And also with his great love for Dostoevsky novels, I mean, those are certainly works where you have characters speaking to each other and the narrator never really ever does come into referee and say, uh, you know, Alyosha, you know, by split decision uh, at the end. I mean, you know, the, the dispute is kind of left open uh, by the time you finish a Dostoevsky novel. Would it be, would a, would a work of theology that did that, would, do you think that would be, that would be satisfying or, or, or more frustrating as people, uh, people are asking you, hey, what's your thesis? You know, I think that different people would receive it differently. I know that uh, in the last, you know, three and a half years, give or to actually coming up on four years now, uh, when I've not been a preacher every week, but I've been filling pulpit occasionally, I've been a lot more experimental with my form when I have filled pulpit, and I've left a lot of theology questions unanswered at the end of a sermon. And by and large, people have received it well. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the reference to um, Bakhtin, right, um, is well taken, and that, that, uh, that way in which a novelist can um, preserve voices that are not simply their own, um, their own monological sock puppet, as it were. Right, right. Well, David, let's move on to some more of Michael's questions, or we're going to be here for four hours. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, in the Shaw interview, I found this was interesting. Peterson makes a distinguish uh, a distinction between theologians of the mountain and theologians of the valley. Um, what was he getting at when he when he used those phrases? And do you think they're they're helpful categories for? Well, I guess not just theology and art, but maybe philosophy and and other sciences. Yeah, it's interesting. This is this is one of the sections of the dialogue that makes me most aware uh, that I come from a different generation than Peterson. Uh, I think that one of the big concerns in Peterson's day as a pastor is that people are too inclined to, you know, focus on dogma and systematic theology and so on and so forth. So he says that there's certainly a place for your Luther, your Calvin, your Karl Barth, uh, the theologies of the mountain, he calls them, because they are giving you a bird's eye view of the whole of the Christian theological tradition and how everything fits together. And, you know, they're going to show you how to navigate the broad strokes. Uh, and his preference, you know, in his own reading is for what he calls the theologians of the valley, uh, which, as he says, are people who are on the ground actually living the faith and he he highlights you know Teresa of Avila and St John of the Cross as you know theologians of the valley they're not necessarily trying to give you uh the entire system in one throw instead what they're more interested in is giving you a sense of you know their own walk uh what does it look like on the path that they are treading 
in this, this life of faith. And it's interesting because I feel like, and you know, David, by all means, counter me on this if I'm looking at it wrong, but it seems to me that the students that I work with and the people that I preach to um, are just inundated with memoirs. Uh, those seem to be, you know, the most uh, well-read and widely sold books these days. So they have a real strong sense of, you know, my personal experience is, the way that I see it is, so on and so forth, uh, to the point that, you know, my sense is that, you know, 50 years after Eugene Peterson, you know, started his publishing career, it might be that the pendulum has swung the other direction and there is more of a call and more of a need for that theology of the mountain kind of work. Um, am, am, am I just spending too much time with undergrads, David, or uh, <laughs> do you sense this sort of thing as well? I, I mean, my gut would be the same. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you pointing out that it's a that it's a generational thing because I, I, you know, as I'm reading through it, you know, I'm I'm looking at my own experience uh, in my own. Uh, in my own lifetime and and even more narrow than that and in the in the few decades in which I paid closer attention to this sort of thing and they're not they're not you know there there's was obviously some overlap um, because Eugene Peterson just passed away but most of his formative experience in in what's shaping the ways you know this this take on life um, didn't come uh, during the period when I was paying closest attention um, I, th I appreciate you reminding me of that. Um, but I, I, I would agree with you um, that the, the experience of the valley, the, the sort of cultural uh, obsession with the primacy of the authentic experience of the, of the individual um, over and above any kind of larger category or larger truth claim is is more where we're at um you know the valley seems to be um for for a lot of folks seems to be the only and the primary reality um but someone someone who can uh give us a sense of uh, a larger context um whether it is uh conceptual or whether it is narrative um uh, a larger context in which our sort of boots on the ground, nose to the grindstone, whatever other phrases you want to use, experience um, in which that fits, um, and which might actually correct our, our interpretations of our personal experience. Like the fact, the fact that you know, the life that I have is accompanied by the feelings and and judgments. Uh, desires and priorities that I've got doesn't mean that I've necessarily um, understood my life rightly, uh, that, that I felt it rightly. You know, maybe I felt authentically, but wrongly. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, and, and that is, you know, to my mind, one of John Calvin's central and most important insights that uh, the depravity is total. It's not just our flesh that is depraved, but it's even our imaginations that stand to be corrected by the witness of scripture. Right. Right. And the, the need, you know, maybe the need for, for more attention to the theologians of the mountain, um, is something, something our time, uh, should heed. Um, but 
you know, maybe just getting the mountain people talking to the valley people, you know, they could probably help each other regardless. Oh, sure. You got to spend some time in both places, I reckon. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David Michael uh, writes that he's very interested in one particular exchange late in the Shaw interview where Peterson says this, quote, the Bible is our primary source of revelation and that if it doesn't tell me, I have to say I don't know. It's okay to speculate, but if you speculate, don't be dogmatic, close quote. He's making a case for mystery there, not absolute mystery, but certainly mystery of some sort. To what extent do you think it's the job of the artist to point at the mystery, and to what extent is it the job of the theologian to clear it up? So a bit about this mystery that he's, uh, that he's pointing out. Um, earlier on, in the in in the the interview he points out that half the bible is narrative and even earlier than that he points out that the other half of the bible is poetry so um he that's one of his you know continual themes you know this this bible is in terms of genre narrative and poetry mainly and needs to be understood in that way. And both of those genres are, or at least can be, mystery-preserving, complexity-preserving forms of communication. Um, don't have to be, uh, but but can be, and often at their best are, mystery-preserving genres. Um, he focuses especially on poetry's use of metaphor and uh, kind of indirect ways of speaking and telling the truth and then the narrative's use of complexity and a present especially a presentation of social and ethical and personal complexities that is um non-judgmental you know something that just sort of presents here's this person um with their glories and with their messes um he calls that uh the the Stories, power of inclusion. Well, where does the where where do I think a theologian fits in with the mystery the way he's talking about it? Um, first, I would say that theologians' job is to leverage the poetry and narrative of the Bible in order to reconstruct, in some sense, the world, the persons, and the relations that we the people of the Bible, right? We people of the book um, that we're invited by faith to live in light of. There is some reality that we're, that we are invited to believe and then to choose in light of that, you know, choose desire um, act in light of that uh, belief. And so what is that, right? So, you know, theologians read the poetry and read the narrative and say, um, what is the what is the reality in which we live? Who are the persons in whom we are in relation with whom we are in relationship, both divine persons and human persons, right? You know, theologians teach me how to think about you, Nathan. Um, and then what constitutes the relationship that I have with those persons? Um, theologians are to draw that out of the poetry and the narrative, um, but also to steer us back to it. Um, one of the things that worries me, though, when he keeps talking about mystery and the importance of the mystery, um, and I and certainly I appreciate the way in which um, 
the poetry and the narrative are always reminding us that our um, our theological attempt that our our theological extractions from them um, are smaller than the source material in some way. Um, but I am concerned that Peterson, who is really immersed in theology by his training, right? He, you just talked about the theolo- you know, the theologians of the mountain, right? He knows all his theologians of the mountain. He talks about um, his love for Luther and Calvin and Bart and people like that. Uh, and he has a doctorate in biblical languages. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's immersed in theology by his training. Um, and I think he's downplaying its value as he praises the poets and the novelists. Right? I mean, obviously, his artists and theologians in dialogue have benefited him. Right? He's benefited from putting those two, those two speakers in conversation personally um, but he always seems to recommend the artists and sort of damn with faint praise the theologians um, yeah that makes some sense that makes some sense but if if um, if you are encountering the Bible only as poetry and narrative but without any of the theologians um, I'm not. I'm not sure that they would necessarily end up at the spot that Peterson wants them to, if that makes sense. Like a lot of the way he talks about mystery and poetry and theology seems most valuable as a corrective to the cerebral kind of person who's mostly been just mainlining theologians. But I don't know how useful it would be to someone who has no background with the theologians to just read the Bible as poetry and narrative. I'm, I'm not entirely certain that person would necessarily end up living Christianly. Yeah, that makes some sense. And I, and you know, I, I, I I'm probably going to return to this image a few times this episode, but I mean, I feel like this is another instance where, you know, Peterson's career represents one swing of the pendulum, uh, you know, towards that very theological, very uh, syllogistic, kind of faith, uh, you know, that frankly, I mean, you know, as a professor at a Presbyterian seminary, he was probably in contact with more than most lay parishioners are going to be in contact with it, right? So it makes sense yeah. in that yeah. context to say, you know, poetry and narrative, that's where it's at. I, I could also make a case uh, that, you know, in the context where I teach, where my students are, you know, immersed in narrative and poetry, not necessarily of, you know, novels and English romantics, but of, you know, HBO series and hip hop. Right. That some correctives from the other side of that, from the more syllogistic side, some examination of that, you know, Socratic sort that we're always talking about might be better medicine for those people than, you know, even more narrative would be, right? And honestly, I I think Peterson would be all right with that because he is such a pastoral thinker and he is such an advocate for paying attention to the particulars of your moment. Right. Right. Well, and, and, and I appreciate that. So I, I, I think, I think maybe what I'm getting at, I, I don't think I'm so much contradicting Peterson as I am maybe seeing a way in which he could be misheard because so many of his sort of favorite, um, so many of the ways that he's speaking of these topics in these interviews and and 
from from what I've heard, um, in many ways, distillation of of his thinking on these topics outside of the interviews. Um, that his favorite his favorite approaches have been shaped as a corrective towards something that isn't necessarily the case for most people in churches, and certainly not outside right, of right. churches. And, and to point back to my own experience again, I mean, he was, as I said, uh, a welcome companion in those early days of my seminary career, right? Right. Uh, where I was, you know, encountering people who were in seemingly life and death disputes over doctrinal formulations, right? Uh, I was a relatively conservative seminary that I attended, and, you know, uh, there was a lot writing on the particular formulations of things, and to pick up Peterson and say, hey, maybe we ought to do a little bit more thinking about, you know, Ivan Karamazov rather than about, you know, theories of atonement, that was good medicine in that moment. Uh, I think there's also other kinds of medicine that are good for other kinds of moments. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, th- yeah, I, I, I think... You know, I, I, I would I would hope that he would that he would agree with us, um, but very often when I've heard Peterson quoted, um, it is it is tacitly to say we ought to be doing this and not doing that, not that we must be doing this, we need to be doing this alongside of that. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes good sense. And again, that's I I, I think David, this is once again my tendency to fill in the gaps of the, you know, authors that I read to make them agree with me more. So I, th- <laughs> I, th- I think once again, you're proving to be a uh, more careful reader and I'm proving to be a more sympathetic reader. Well, now let's keep in mind, you've read much more of him than I have, right? Yeah, true enough. It is 20 years ago. So you know, how much do you trust my memory? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably fairly reliable. Um, but you know, in, the, in in this case, I'm working. I'm working with the text that I have. Um, yeah. Well, the uh, turning from the Shaw interview to the interview by Krista Tippett, um, she starts by uh, asking Peterson about his experience growing up in Montana, and apparently, growing up in that environment, um, surrounded by surrounded by nature, that way had a big impact on Peterson. Um, do you think that a love of nature can do similar kinds of things for a theologian as a love for poetry? Yeah, and when I think of this, I, I don't think of Peterson nearly as often as I think of Wendell Berry. Uh, well, yeah. Because when Wendell Berry is writing geographically from a place that's more like my own childhood. Uh, so it, it, it's interesting, whenever we drive up for Christmas, as we'll be doing here in a few weeks, uh, to visit my parents and my grandmother. Uh, one of the things that always occurs to me is that even though at this point in my life I've lived longer in the South than I ever did in the Midwest, uh, when I am making my way to you know my grandma Quick's house through Southern Indiana and the Coal Hills and the you know the very stark winter with the you know trees barren from leaves and so on and so forth, you know that punctuate the soybean fields and the corn fields and all that kind of Indiana thing, right? That is, in my imagination, what the outdoors looks like, 
So even when I walk out in my own yard where my children have grown up, it looks like someplace that's not quite as real as central and southern Indiana. So I appreciated uh, that in, you know, this interview, uh, Peterson really points to, you know, the Montana countryside and, you know, imagining the Indians and, you know, all these kinds of things as formative for him because it strikes me that um, in my own imagination, at least, uh, the terrain of central and southern Indiana, um, like I said, I mean, you know, it, it gives a framework, if you will, to my imagination, right? When I imagine things happening, I imagine them happening in deciduous forests in Hendricks County, Indiana. Um, I'm not cool. sure if I took that where Michael wanted it to go, but Michael ain't here, so what is he going to do about it, right? What do you <laughs> think about this, David? Um, I, I like the, um, I like, I like Peterson's, uh, Peterson's way of, way of pointing to that landscape as a place that, that he chose to live in and his parents didn't necessarily. Um, that's, that's kind of part of the story is that, uh, you know, that that all of it, not all of his family were nature people the way that he is, um, right, right. And the way that he thinks of, um, you know, maybe maybe even his his own self perception is is shaped by this. That you know, the one who goes out and just sort of basks in things as they are versus you know staying inside and you know doing artificial things. You know that. That that seems that seems to be you know influential on him, um, the bigness of the sky and the bigness of the mountains and um, the possibility of things that are wild and mysterious and unknown um, as part of the landscape. Um, the landscape that I grew up in, um, you know, in a suburb, uh, was parcelled and organized and geometric and small. Um, you know, I, how how would I think differently about the world if my backyard had been bigger, if my sky had been bigger? I don't know. Let's turn to another part of the, the Tippett interview. Uh, Peterson says that all the prophets were poets, and if you don't know that, you try to literalize everything and make a shambles out of it, end quote. So what he's saying here has something to do with metaphor, but he doesn't really draw out what that means, so... Let's try to do that for him, David. I mean, what does it mean that the prophets are poets? And are evangelicals uncomfortable with metaphor, as far as you can tell? Oof. Two cans of worms. Okay, so obviously the ancient Hebrew prophets are working constantly in metaphor. Uh, so we'll just start with the very first one in the set. Uh, Isaiah 1. Uh after after the this is the this is the vision of the prophet Isaiah son of Amos which he saw in the reigns of and so forth right so beginning at verse two hear O heavens and give ear O earth for the Lord has spoken children have I reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib but Israel does not know my people do not understand so and every time I hear that read out loud David I think. The Spanish know they're Spanish. The Greeks are taught they're Greek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That, that's my fair lady listener. Sorry. Go ahead, David. Excellent. Well, so Isaiah's first oracle kicks off with three metaphors in the first two verses. Uh, first, uh, we have a courtroom scene in which the universe is summoned to witness the proceeding uh, of, of, of God against the accused, his people. Um, then there is a disorder of a sort of a little scene of a disordered home with insolent children and a long-suffering father. Children I've reared, but they've rebelled against me. And then there's a pretty direct and not flattering comparison between uh, God's people Israel and some famously cantankerous domestic animals, right? So ox knows and donkey knows, but Israel doesn't know, right? So learning to read into and not just sort of skip over, not read past Isaiah's metaphors in these verses, it helps us understand the relationship between God and God's people in that moment, right? It helps us to feel the facts more truly. Um, it's one of the things that poetry does, right? It helps us get inside of what, um, of what something feels like, what the experience of knowing and living something is like, not just you know, a, a kind of naked description of it, right? It helps us get inside of things. And so um, being attentive to the ways in which the prophets are poets um, will help us, I think, to get inside of the truth they're saying more. Um, Sometimes I think evangelicals may be impatient with this lavish use of metaphor, especially uh, if this is a text that's being preached on. because the whole point of the sermon is to get to the point and tell me what to do, right? Um, on the other hand, we really love this kind of thing in song, right? So think of the 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 bits of Isaiah or or Jeremiah or other prophets that we might be impatient with. We're at a sermon. Let's let's get to the point. Let's get to the application. Um, but we'll but we'll pick those metaphors and images straight out of the text of the prophets or of the psalms and just plug them into our worship songs undigested right um so you know we'll talk about you know when you pass through the fire you'll not be burned and and so forth and nobody sort of stops the song and says this is a metaphor (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, so our use of the language in song is really putting a lot of trust in the worshipers as poetry hearers and and I think assumes rightly that evangelicals when they're worshiping quite like this sort of thing. Even if you even if you stopped all the music and asked them to unpack it, um, they might not be able to do it uh, as coherently as you want, but they know how to use metaphor and image and song in worship, and they like it. They, you know, we appreciate it, even if we're not patient with it in discourse. So, you know, we may be evangelicals as a whole might be better poetry hearers um, than we are poetry readers. <laughs> Yeah, that makes more sense. It's interesting, David. I took this question in a very different direction. Uh, what I think of is the evangelical discomfort with 
a certain rhetorical maneuver that says this is just poetry. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whether we're talking about, you know, creation narratives or whether we're talking about, you know, ethical demands or right, whether we're right. talking about, you know, the parts that the parts of the scripture, frankly, that modern people find distasteful, uh, you know, a common dismissal of those things is, well, this is just poetry. We don't have to. Well, I mean, very seldom do they actually say out loud, we don't have to take it seriously. But right. often that is the uh, implication, at least. Okay, I think, yeah, evangelicals are rightly suspicious of metaphor um, if it is a means to tame or restrict the meaning of the text. And not, not that we're always, you know, not that evangelicals, you know, conservative evangelicals have always been um, uh, entirely consistent in following their gut on this point, but I think it's a good instinct. Metaphor can go in a couple of different directions, right? It can point higher, it can go sublime, or it can point lower, right? It can it can collapse things into a smaller, um, limited explanation. So classically, theologians speak about the analogical nature of our God talk, right? Um, when we say true things about God, we are saying true things, but also we're saying them analogically. Our language um, speaks truly, but does not exhaust the reality of God's fullness. Right. So we can point at God without surrounding God. Right. Exactly. So, so in that way, metaphor good. Embrace metaphor. But if someone says... Well, isn't God just a metaphor for the mystery of the universe or human potential or, you know, something like bingo, right, bingo, right. <laughs> then the metaphor is actually compressing the mystery into something that our secular age finds comfortable and material and, you know, comfortable and familiar. So metaphor on its own, um, Peterson wants to claim that embracing the metaphorical nature of much of scripture, embracing the presence of metaphor and the poetry helps us be humble in front of the mysteries. But metaphor, metaphor in itself is not always a buttress against our arrogance, right? Um, right. It, Sometimes it's a tool of that same arrogance. Right. So, you know, I, I appreciate that he sees metaphor functioning in all of these ways that help us um, that help remind us that God um, escapes our ability to um, to to be contained in language, but um, sometimes metaphor is an attempt to contain something with language, and you know, I, maybe, maybe that's something else that that he says somewhere else, and I just haven't read it. Um, but if I'm suspicious of metaphor, that's the kind of metaphor I'm suspicious of. Right, right. And I mean, you know, as someone who's been, you know, greatly influenced by, you know, theologians who emphasize the plurality in the Bible, certainly I can get on board with Peterson's, you know, emphasis on the poetic and therefore the polyvalent character of biblical revelation, right? Right. Uh, but again, you know, this is a warning for his own moment. And once again, I don't think that Peterson would deny that, right? I mean, you know, um, I think that different moments call for different kinds of theologians. And frankly, like I said, in 1999, uh, when 
every dogmatic proposition was life or death, uh, this was a relief to me, even as now, uh, you know, with my students, you know, who regard theology as, you know, sort of a, a mild term of abuse for people who don't really love Jesus but like to talk about Jesus, <laughs> uh, you know, it might be that another approach is more helpful. Um, see, I want to see how this, how this, how this strikes you. Um, if you see metaphor, uh, I, I think that the way Peterson's using it, that, that metaphor is, uh, is his way of looking at the language and saying, um, See, see how see how it points to this thing that 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 is that is constantly spilling out and um, pu- pushing up against it. Um, but often, I think we look at we look at poetry simply as rhetorical flourish, simply as decorative language, and we're not looking at the the information work, the knowledge work that metaphor does. Peterson seems to right. be attentive to that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, I think that, again, evangelicals are put on edge by the sort of facile use of metaphor by a sort of intellectually lazy atheism that says that if something is metaphorical, therefore it is not true. Right. I mean, if something might be metaphorical because it's, you know, because it's actually truer and bigger than its comparison. Like the flea. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not the direction I would have gone, David, but that does work. Right. So, back at you, Nathan. Um, Peterson, in the Tippett interview, uh, he says that one of the useful things about the Psalms is that they give language, not just for love, but all for also for our, our hatred, our aggression. Um, and that seems... That seems very Aristotelian, virtue ethic-y, right? In which people are learning to love and fear the right kinds of things. So do we turn to art to teach us to hate the right kinds of things? I mean, would would art be dangerous if it did that? Yeah, this is interesting because, uh, you know, there are definitely uh, psalms that, you know, hate unrighteousness and hate injustice and, you know, hate things that, uh, I would say a, a rightly ordered soul, uh, looks on not with, you know, sort of a benign toleration, but with, uh, a prayer that God would blast it away. Uh, that's a phrase that I borrowed from the, the, uh, the Bible Jewish theologian. I'm trying to think, um, oh, now I can't think of his name. I shouldn't have brought him up. Uh, I'll think of his name later. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, Creation and the Persistence of Evil is his his most famous book. So there are certainly passages in the Psalms uh, that point us in that direction. There are also passages, though, uh, where the psalmist calls on God uh, to destroy the bodies of his enemies. So these enemies who we would confess are beloved by Jesus, uh, you know, it's a call to destroy them. And then there's also passages, you know, most famously Psalm 137, where the rage is directed at children, 
blesses yep. the one who dashes your little ones against the rocks. Uh, so there's a range in here. Uh, and Peterson's approach to this has always been interesting to me, even if not, I'm even if I'm not entirely satisfied by it. Uh, because for him, the Psalms are, are simply, you know, a mirror that the Bible holds up to the state of our own soul. Uh, and therefore, you know, the moral judgment at the very least gets suspended as we read the Psalms. Um, honestly, I think that Peterson's approach is better than some more progressive readings of the Psalms that I've heard that, you know, the Psalms are simply uh, permission to have feelings. Uh, which, you know, does to them kind of what it kind of what it does to say that, you know, Genesis is poetry, right? It's to say, well, that's nice. Pat you on the head, biblical author. Now let's shove you to the side so the adults can talk about it. Right. Peterson, at the very least, grants it adult status. Right. Um, that said, I mean, you know, I and, and honestly, I'm realizing, David, as I kind of talk through this, I, I didn't I wasn't thinking about this when I was prepping for the episode uh, that, you know, my unease with Peterson here is of a kind with my unease with uh, G.K. Chesterton at his most glib, right? When he says that, you know, the monk and the crusader, they both have a place in Christianity. And I'm thinking, oh, but do they? <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> let's, let, let's back up just a little bit. I know that's a lovely phrase. You turn a lovely phrase, Mr. Chesterton. No one denies it, but let's back up. Let's back, let's think about this a little slower. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that I have a good way to read the Psalms. I think Peterson's is probably better than any that I could formulate. Uh, you know, I get just as uneasy, I'll go ahead and confess, with the thoroughgoing program of uh, allegorical reading that Augustine suggests that, you know, the babies that are getting dashed against the rocks are our mortal sins and we are bashing right, them against right. the rocks of salvation or some such. That strikes me as a a weird reading as well at the very least. Uh, yeah. So in other words, David, I mean, you know, Peterson here is uh, pointing to a question that I've got, even as I fail to produce an answer. What have you got? Um, I, I, I think, um, I think it's one, one of the things that's really interesting and I, I'm still sort of exploring, um, trying, trying this one on, um, is uh, one of one of the views of of the fathers that um, it came out in um, interview that I had with Derek Olson about his um, his book on Cassiodorus Honey, Honey of Souls, in which uh, the Psalms present uh, sort of the 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 inner life of the righteous one of God's righteous one. This is this is what it is like to be inside um, of the righteous one. And ultimately, so so analogous to what uh, uh, Athanasius was doing with the Psalms, was that who we read on the Psalms, or am I thinking of someone uh, else? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, like 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 what Athanasius does, exactly like that. Um, so that ultimately, the inner life of Christ is what's reflected. Now, obviously, you know the you know the Psalms where you know uh, where there is repentance from sin. Um, you know, I would I would affirm as you know as as the New Testament does, that uh, Christ was tempted in all ways, just as we are, and yet without sin. Um, so, but but still, I'm I'm very interested in how is it that the heart of the righteous one, 
Um, and that's, that's part of Psalm's language, the righteous feel in particular ways. The ways in which the, psalm, the psalmists are reflecting the heart of the righteous one and Christ as the ultimate righteous one uh, also had uh, also had a heart, also had um, you know emotions, had dispositions towards things. So I'm inter- I'm interested in that. Um, the particular one, blessed are blessed are the ones who who take and dash your little ones against the stone. Um, uh, that one I think ought rightly to wig everyone out. Um, but I wonder whether it's whether we ought to be reading that psalm along with the oracles of Isaiah and uh, other prophets against Babylon, um, rejoicing because Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and even calling um, the the Medo-Persian Empire that leads to their overthrow um, the the anointed ones of God, in spite of the fact that. You know, right, and Cyrus in particular. Right, exactly. And in, in spite of the fact that he's, you know, he's just as much a heathen and um, and and, and uh, a bloody empire builder as the Babylonians were, um, but the fact that God uses, uh, God, God employs that historical violence of of sinful nation builders to judge other sinful nation builders is cause for praise among His righteous ones in the Psalms and in the prophets. Um, those are not comfy things, but maybe maybe some of our contemporary um, disapproval for violence in all its forms, regardless, um, maybe that's something that we need we need to recognize as of our own time and not simply something that comes out of scripture. Maybe that's something scripture confronts us on. Oh, certainly. I mean, you don't have to stick with the Old Testament for that either. I mean, Revelation certainly has its oracles uh, against the whore of Babylon, among other things. Exactly. So, I mean, that's obviously not a a very full treatment of that subject, but it's what I got. Yeah, and, and like I said, I mean, you know, I I don't fault anyone for trying to make sense of it so long as it is always a provisional sense that we make of it right Uh, and this is where my deconstructionist streak comes out right um i i don't disapprove of the very human activity of making order of things when they seem chaotic uh so long as we don't um try to make it too tidy or too permanent right i don't uh and and peterson here i mean you know to to return to peterson for a moment like i said i mean you know his system here is about as adequate as what I can come up with. So I'm certainly not uh, standing over him here. I'm just uh, saying that, you know, I find his account leads me into troubling places just as easily as the rest of them do. Right. Well, and I, and I would also not want to say, um, by all means, replace reading this psalm with my own way of making sense of that psalm. You know, I, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean that that that's where the danger lies, because, and one of the things I do appreciate about Peterson throughout these interviews, is the way that he's continually pointing you back to, um, the text of the scripture in the genre that it's written, and that are commentaries, and that are 
Um, there are, are attempts to systematize uh, the sorts of truth that those texts tell um, can never replace the the function of the text itself, not only in its content, but also and especially in its form. Right, right. Well, David, I want to get to uh, Michael's penultimate question, because this is one that I, like I said, when I read this one, I, I thought, okay, I've got things to say with the, about this, but you got first crack at this because we're obeying the decrees of the absent Michael. And here's what the absent Michael says. Uh, Peterson says something provocative right at the end of the Tippett interview. He says that the word God, and especially the word Christianity, have become too small for him that he tries to be very circumspect about using them. We can talk about the theological implications of that decision if you'd like, but I think I, Michael Farmer, am more interested in the literary implications. The pastor and the theologian are supposed to turn to poetry to see language in a new way. What does it mean when poetry tells us that the foundational theological language is much too weak? All right, well, I'm going to take two runs at this, and then I'm going to get out of the way because you got stuff to say. Um, first, poetry might be telling us that our theological language is weak in its effects. Um, recently, I led a couple of class discussions on Plato's dialogue, the uh, Phaedrus, and, and then another discussion on Richard Weaver's article on that same dialogue, and we discussed those years ago on uh, the CHP. But one of the issues that Weaver discusses is the failure of restricting ourselves to a supposedly objective technical form of discourse, um, wanting to steer away from, uh, from the, the decorative uh, or... Um, hortatory uh, forms of rhetoric in, 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 in order to just sort of scientifically describe things. Um, but how we speak of God shouldn't only inform us, but also move our souls Godward. So poetry may judge our theological language weak um, in its ability to, um, to move people towards what, uh, what the language describes. Um, and I think that would be a legitimate critique. Also, poetry may tell us that our theological language is weak because the language uh, is, is insufficient for the task, but does not confess itself to be insufficient to the task. Um, poetry is always pointing beyond itself, self-consciously. Right? It's reminding you um, that it's speaking about a reality that it can't contain, and it does so with figures of speech. It's constantly saying, um, I have things to tell you that I can't tell you literally. Um, and they are, right. they are... This is Dante all the way through the paradise. Right, exactly. You know, if I, just, if I just tried to say this nakedly and factually, it would be smaller than the reality I want you to conceive. Um, so we don't always remember that that's also true of our theological language. Um, in fact, a lot of our theological language is metaphor that gets concealed in classical words, right? So, um, you know, if someone says, but what does it mean that Jesus was God and, and, but also a man and, and, and you might say, 
oh, well, you know, um, the, the, the hypostatic union in the incarnation. Ah. Okay. I mean, like, do the etymology on those terms, and really you've just restated the English phrases, right? <laughs> he has... Right. In other words, to help you understand, we gave you the Greek word for understand, hypostasis. Right. Exactly. Like, like that's not, you know, that's not an explanation. You just rephrased it in a dead language. Um, or, or you know, are they are they're, they're metaphors. You know, when we talk about, you know, someone might in 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 terms of Trinitarian uh, theology might talk about the procession of the Spirit. Um, from from the father you know um well procession just means stepping forth right like that does that's not an explanation that's a metaphor um right right um so we can mistake the precision of our vocabulary for an actual grip on the subject of our discourse and for that i would recommend um uh, I, I would recommend John of Damascus's exposition of the Orthodox faith, um, particularly uh, the section, the short section concerning things utterable and things unutterable, and then the section called concerning the nature of deity that it is incomprehensible. Um, you know, he... That, that, there's a title that almost forbids the book. Right, exactly. But then he goes on and writes a book, right? He He wants to be able to say... Um, ultimately, um, when we're talking about God, um, we're going to be making, we're going to, we're going to be telling you about what he isn't. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about things that exceed our knowledge and exceed our language. But then he goes on and writes a book that says a lot of specific stuff, right? But he's, he, he began it by doing what poetry does, Right. By, by saying this, this language is about to attempt to do something beyond its means. Um, and our theology may not always be, be overtly humble in that way. Maybe that's one of the things. That's, that's how I'd answer the question. But how would you go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, I, I commend that you are once again, you know, reading this uh, in a very different way than I did, because when I think about this question of, of, you know, languages inadequacy to, you know, contain God and Christianity's inadequacy to, uh, deliver God to us. Uh, again, I think that, you know, first of all, at the end of a 50 year career as a pastor, translator, scholar, uh, and, you know, pastor to pastors, to use a phrase that people have been using a lot for Peterson lately, uh, it makes some sense to say, all right, uh, because I have dwelt with this for a human lifetime, I'm realizing at this stage in the journey that there are things beyond uh, what it is that I can communicate and certainly more than, you know, what I can comprehend that I can surround with my language. I think there's a place for that. Like I said uh, a couple other times, I think in our moment, though, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, one of Stanley Hauerwas's riffs. And of course, once you've heard Stanley Hauerwas use a riff once, you can find him using it six or seven times other places. Um, <laughs> uh, but he, he tells his divinity students, you know, 
the last thing I want you to do is to seek out a personal relationship with Jesus. There's enough narcissism in the world already. <laughs> and again, you know, on one level, uh, you know, that's something that you would never want to tell to someone who says, you know, I feel like the universe is an indifferent place and that, you know, there is nothing for us human beings except to, you know, try to procreate and exert our will in the world. I mean, for that person, you know, the fact that, you know, God pursues the sinner uh, is good news indeed. In fact, you could call it gospel. In fact, I probably would. Yep. Uh, but there's also a place for, you know, Hauerwas's utterance that uh, when we are in a moment where spiritual but not religious uh, is becoming a more popular option than, you know, historical forms of orthodoxy, this might not be the best medicine. I keep going back to that metaphor, David, but I really do think that, you know, the practice of medicine, as I, as I read Socrates talk about it, since you and I teach Platonic dialogues a fair bit, uh, is a good metaphor here, right? I mean, for certain kinds of sickness, certain kinds of medicine are good. For different kinds of, of sickness, that same kind of medicine, it doesn't stop being that kind of medicine. Right. But because of the circumstances, it becomes objectively harmful. Uh, so again, you know, I, I, I want to keep saying that, you know, when I was in that first year of seminary, that second year of seminary, when everything was life and death, when everything was syllogistic, uh, when, you know, I was falling into this trap of, you know, logically comprehending God or believing that I could at any rate, this was very, very good for me. Uh, and I also want to say that for a lot of my students for whom theology is just, you know, useless because, you know, all you really need to do is love Jesus. Uh, I want to say, what does that verb love mean? What right. does that noun Jesus mean? What kinds of stories are you telling when you tell those stories? Right. So, um, again, maybe this is a matter of, you know, Eugene Peterson entering into a sort of second youth, right? Because uh, I associate these uh, these flights from dogma with you know sort of the the youthful realization that things are metaphors. Well, if things are metaphors, we can do anything. Woohoo! Uh, and then we need a certain kind of corrective, right? Uh, but then when we get so locked into dogmatic formulations that you know we stop, we lose our capacity to imagine God operating outside of our dogmatic categories then that's when we do need the corrective of poetry, right? right. So, I mean, uh, it really is a, a, a medical metaphor that I want to put out there. Uh, you, you think that's an all right metaphor, David? Yeah, I, I, I really, I, I like it um, b because it, well, one, um, it does something that dialectic doesn't do, right? And in dialectic, um, the thing that pushes and the thing that's pushed against are both are both relatively equal and both serve the greater synthesis that results. Um, but in this particular case, your metaphor helps show that the things being countered are actually unhealthy states. Yes, yes. And there is a that's good. There is a truth that is needed to counter the unhealthy state, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so 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 that I that 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 I appreciate. Um, the thing that I am, um, that I'm afraid of, and just kind of, I, maybe, maybe I'm piggybacking off of you, is that 
I'm not I'm not so much worried just that students will prefer the way poetry tells truth to the way um, sort of dogmatics tell truth it's that um, it's that a lot of folks just don't understand the way poetry tells truth yeah say more about that um, you know it's just deep man right and it could just you know it just it really speaks to me and what did it say I don't know it just you know it just really spoke to me and the 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 no, the notion that poetry could you know it could just mean anything because it's just all symbolism and and it's also personal and 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 the notion of the poetic and then the notion of the, of the metaphorical um, ends up becoming simply a mirror another mirror of the self when right, when right. poetry read rightly um poetry ought to pull you out of yourself not simply represent yourself again again and again it's not simply you know a series of sort of linguistic rorschach tests where you're being asked again does this look like a butterfly what about this one what about that one um you know poetry is meant to use words to remove you from the limits of your own experience and give you some sense of the interiority of a different experience. They're trying to hack your brain is what's happening. And reading poetry rightly will give you something other than yourself. And that is the mo one of the most precious things that you can ever be given. Um, right. And, and it brings to mind, David, Stanley Fish's notion that Stan Harawas picks up of the disciplined interpretive community right this is actually a tradition of reading that's that gets handed down and there is an apprenticeship that leads to a place where you can make a plurality of readings but it's always accompanied with expectations of a community that you're still going to be doing it in ways that are intelligible to that tradition right right so if we're going to read scripture as poetry we're not reading scripture as poetry alone on our Montana mountain. And it just sort of says whatever, you know, whatever we feel like it's saying at the moment. Um, you know, it's possible to be, to, to think scripture is cool poetry and be a bad reader of poetry. Um, and in that case, uh, your latter state is worse than your first, as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. Um, I would I would rather you I would rather you believe creedily and vaguely than have strong feels about um about some kind of poetic truth that's really nothing more than your own magnified narcissism. But those are not the only options. <laughs> you can also not by any means. Yes, you can also think richly poetically and richly creedily so you know i would recommend wedding the two instead of having poor versions of either absolutely absolutely well david uh let's wrap up michael's question set here uh he wants to go out in a petersonian mode as it were uh so 
I'll let you do this and then I'll do it and then I'll let you do the closing credits. Uh, name a piece of art or two that you think that pastors or theologians could benefit from engaging with. I don't have a specific piece of art, but a specific category of art. Um, and that is uh, photography of, of people, um, portraits, especially black and white, and especially of, of, of faces. Um, I think, uh, and th this is, this is, this is something that, uh, I've really appreciated lately is, um, uh, looking at, um, Twitter feeds and Instagram feeds of historical portraits and, um, pictures of people from, from, you know, other, other eras than my own. Um, I was, uh, recently uh, I was really affected by um, uh, it was it was just a trailer for a film I'm trying to remember who who was responsible for it maybe 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 you you, you would recognize this but it was a film that colorized um, fragments of newsreels from World War one huh no I have it was of this. remastering and colorizing World War one footage and the two-minute trailer made me weep because suddenly there were all of these, there were just all of these men, right? Like real men with smiles and wrinkles and um, laughing and then pain on their faces and desolation and that just that whole range of, and, and beyond my range of human experience um, in those real people with their real pictures. Um, I think especially pastors, um, but also theologians, uh, just immersing yourself in studying other people's faces and being, being, being faced by, faced, yeah. Being, being faced by the reality of, of, of others who aren't you um, is just a, a really good and helpful thing to do pastorally because, well, your job is people. Uh, Very good. I'm, I'm going to go outside of my normal range because I know that I've, I've recommended books to pastors before. And I'm going to say that one category of literature that could probably do some good uh, is literary comedies. Now, I don't mean Adam Sandler movies and God help us, not Will Ferrell movies. <laughs> but I do mean, you know, your Plautus and your Aristophanes and your Shakespeare and Johnson and your Wo Oscar Wilde. Wodehouse. Uh, what now? Wodehouse? Absolutely, yes, yes. That's another good addition. And the reason I would say this is because one of the, you know, fundamental experiences that the Bible does get into, but pastors so often miss it because we take it so gravely and so seriously, uh, is that there are some genuinely funny moments to the Bible, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, when, you know, in the book of Jonah, uh, you know, the pagan sailors and the mighty winds of the sea and the great chaos monster 
As soon as they are commanded by God, they immediately obey, and the only thing in that stupid book that won't obey is Jonah himself. That's funny. Uh, you know, when you've got, um, and I'm trying to think of a, a good one from the Gospels, right? Um, <laughs> you know, when when you are, you know, traveling with Jesus, and, you know, the disciples, you know, have just been shown you know, the elevated Jesus. And the first thing they're talking about is, so when he drives out the Romans, which one of us gets to sit on the right hand? <laughs> I mean, that, that there is some humor to that, right? Or even better, I, I should have thought of this one first, when, you know, John 10, uh, if you read it just straightforward as a source for, you know, uh, you know, graphics to put on your church newsletter, you've got Jesus the gate, Jesus the shepherd, so on and so forth. But read it as a narrative, and Jesus says, I am the gate through which the sheep pass. The disciples say, what? <laughs> and he says, all right, I am the tender of the sheep and the sheep recognize my voice. No, still not getting it. <laughs> I'm a good shepherd. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh. <laughs> uh, and I probably got that out of, out of order. If there's anyone who's a scholar of John, you know, write in, go ahead, take your best shot. Uh, but like I said, you know, I think that, uh, reading comedies, uh, is probably something that I haven't recommended enough to pastors. So I'm going to do it today. Um, so David, you want to take us home here? Well, who's, who goes next week? Um, is it my, I think it's not my turn yet. I don't think. I think it is. I is think it, it is because I did. Uh, I did intellectual virtues, and you're up next. Oh man! So is it going to be a mystery episode? Yeah. Is it going to be one of our super special ones <laughs> where we don't tell them what it's about until we actually record it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally. Oh boy, listeners! Yay! For for com- reasons that are completely intentional and have nothing at all <laughs> to do with the fact that I forgot my turn was next. Um, yeah, you're just going to have to wait and see. It's going to be like one of those mystery boxes that you sign up for on those subscription services, right? You know, you get the box and you open it and you go, oh, whoa, cool. It's like a leather razor strop or something, right? It'll be like that. Something like that. Well, dear listeners, we hope that you appreciate uh, uh, our conversation, uh, at least at a distance, at some remove with uh, Eugene Peterson um, and uh we we both say thank you to Michael Farmer for um, directing to directing us to these conversations that he had, and then uh, giving us the questions to invite us to engage. That um, uh, I had a good time with this, and I think you did too, Nathan. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. If there's more Eugene Peterson than I, David Grubbs, really ought to be reading because I haven't. Um, and you want to make those recommendations or. Um, we've said things that were confusing or errant or, you know, whatever reason you want to comment. Uh, you can do so on Facebook uh, at uh, the Christian Humanist Facebook page. You can also post them on the show notes for uh, uh, on the blog, christianhumanist.org, or you can send them in the form of email to the christianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, the Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Ellen Peterson, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and I'm David Grubbs on behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer. 
telling you to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.